The meaning of our democracy. What is democracy for me? Defining the rule of law. The best invention of the Greeks. To me, it's like good health. You don't know what you have till it's gone. Government by the people, for the people. That means all people. And constantly evolving. You just gotta roll with it. Hello again and welcome to Rolling with Democracy. The podcast where we talk about democracy, the rule of law and all that good stuff. My name is Steffi and I'm your host. In this second episode, I only have one guest as a legal expert with me, who we will get to know a little bit better. We will talk today about populism and the link to the European Court of Human Rights. This episode was also recorded before the lockdown in Germany. So my guest today is Alain Zizé. He is a lecturer in public law at the School of Law, University of Glasgow. And he is part of the first generation of reconstitution fellows. His current research project deals with the legal responses to populism and the role of the European Court of Human Rights. So before we dive right into the subject, Alain, we would like to get to know you a little bit better. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, thank you, Stephanie, for inviting me. I was born in Brazil and spent about four years of my life there and then the rest in Switzerland until about I was 28 when I decided to pursue an academic career further. This is also when I finished my PhD and decided to go abroad to research. Mm -hmm. And you said you grew up in Brazil. Yes, I think one can say that that was mostly accidental in the sense that my dad got a job there and mm -hmm. moved his family. I don't have many memories of uh, Brazil, but the memories that I have uh, are quite vivid. I was very young, so it's not, uh, it, it comes back sometimes. Okay, so let's talk about your project. Why did you pick the topic of populism and why did you link it to the European Court of Human Rights? I think that there's perhaps a personal and a more professional slash intellectual reason to, to address the topic of populism and also to link it with the European Court of Human Rights. So the personal reason, I come from Switzerland and more specifically from the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And in that part of the world, we hear a lot about French politics. Mm -hmm. And I think since I listen to anything in French politics, I remember someone called Marine Le Pen who was the head of the then-called Front National. And um, I've been always sort of struck by the tone of her voice. So she's always been quite, I find, aggressive, impatient, impulsive. And these traits, I think, have now sort of uh, generalized to a number of populist leaders. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so that, that is the sort of a long story for why I thought sort of got interested in, in the topic. And then uh, to link it to the European Court of Human Rights. In my previous research projects, I've been trying to reconstruct the conception of democracy that the court has. It should extend its conception to cover more rights, to have a consistent approach to democracy. Yeah. And then the rise of populism in the last years, we should make sure that populists do not constitute a threat to, to this institutional framework. And so my research project is basically about how the court, if it should respond to populism, how it should maybe 
change anything to its current approach to democracy. Hold on, wait a minute. What exactly is the European Court of Human Rights? In order to understand what this court is about and what it is doing, I think you can imagine yourself uh, trying to organize a protest in the city of Berlin. We've seen that recently, for instance, with the skeptics of COVID-19. If you want to organize a protest, you need to get some authorization by the city. If you are not allowed to do so, and you disagree with the reasons for why you weren't allowed, you can of course appeal against that decision through the judicial process. And you could do that in the court system in Germany uh, until the constitutional court, the federal constitutional court of Germany. But if you still disagree, with the Supreme or the Apex Court of Germany, the European Court of Human Rights gives you an extra chance. What, what's really important to the system is that you have what we call exhausted the domestic judicial system and the remedy system. If you can prove that at the European Court of Human Rights, you might have a shot. Do you have a definition for populism? Because, for example, Jan Werner Müller, a political professor at Princeton University, actually wrote a book about populism. And he claims that populists damage democracy at its core because they always say we and only we represent the people and their true interests. So they basically reject pluralism in societies. And I always think, okay, um, throughout my life, I will probably change my interests and perspectives a lot. For example, now I don't have any kids, but later on I will probably have different needs and interests. And then later on, um, I enter into old age, I will have even more different interests. So what's your take on that? Oh, wow, there's a lot in that proposition and question. I think there is still one core feature of populism which you can observe in different contexts and under different forms, mm -hmm. which is that populists operate with the idea that there's a strict dichotomy between the real or the true people on the one hand yeah. and the elite mm -hmm. on the other. And so if this is their basic view of politics, uh, you can wonder why they have such a strong dichotomy. And the reason is that they think that for a very long time, the people mm -hmm. basically have been oppressed by the elite. In other words, at the level of representation, the level of political institution, the interest, the value, uh, the views of the people were sidelined, were repressed. They claim that they are representing the people. They claim that they are working in their interest, but in fact, they're not. Yeah, exactly. So what I always wonder is how can populists, if they claim that they only represent the people, how can they represent at the same time, you know, a young woman or a young man or someone with kids or without kids or someone with an immigration history or someone without or a rich person or poor person? To me, this only is possible with um, majorities, with like a pluralist society. 
Yeah. yeah, so I think that's a question that populists have been consistently reluctant to answer. So they surf on this assumption, and it's an assumption that seems to be shared a certain portion of the population since they managed to reach power. But the assumption is sufficiently strong, although it might be younger person, older person, a wealthier person, a more modest person. They still share a sense that they've been sidelined by a corrupt political class. Rather than actually defining who they are, I think they are defining who is basically oppressing them, who they think is basically corrupt. It's not necessarily who we are, but who we are against. Okay. But do you also see some advantages in this way of thinking? When you say so, against corrupt elites? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that we need to, to consider very carefully because the hypothesis that there is corruption at the level of government, at the level of parliament, for instance, is always a plausible one. You cannot rule out a priori that there is no corruption. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but what populists, I think, are saying is something more radical. It is to say that the whole political spectrum and the way politics have been organized in recent decades is completely corrupt. And then there is, that justifies a very radical turn mm -hmm. in the way we uh, do and organize politics. So do you think that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, populists are now irrelevant? Or would you also maybe make a distinction between countries ruled by populist parties and countries where populist parties remain in opposition? Hmm. Well, uh, on the one hand, I think opposition is always a very comfortable location for populists because they can denounce mm -hmm. uh, what they uh, think is uh, systematically flawed about the current political system. Yeah, sure. Um, It gets usually more tricky when um, populists are in power. And you can see that in the context of the pandemic, although, uh, I mean, this is still an ongoing phenomenon, so we are just observing and perhaps at a later time we can analyze properly. But what I find very interesting is that as much as populists are struggling with the definition, the very definition of, of their own political movement, They are also struggling with facts. Yeah. So in a pandemic, if you want to combat the pandemic effectively, you need facts. And mm -hmm. that's why we all here in today's world rely on the expertise of epidemiologists. Mm -hmm. That's a problem for populists because in principle, and that's again an assumption, uh, scientific, scientists and intellectuals are also part of the elite. And they might also be completely corrupt. So the numbers and the figures that they're showing us and on which policies need to be based, must be flawed for the populists. And the problem is that, as far as I know, viruses do not care about populism. So that creates a very, I think, a very big problem for them. Yeah. Uh, and we would have to see how uh, that impacts on their political prospects. Yeah, so you were already talking about facts and figures, um, and I would like to know how would you personally link populism to all these conspiracy theories that seem to be gaining more and more popularity right now? I mean, um, I think that there is a flirt between, at least a flirt, if not something more, between uh, populist and uh, conspiracy theorists. I don't know much about conspiracy theorists, to be honest. I think this is a vast uh, field of research. But intuitively, I would say that populists cannot be 
conspiracy theorists all the way down. Because precisely they are saying something about how things should be done, they have an account of how to run a country, and therefore, to some extent, they don't think that there's some kind of permanent conspiracy in the in the world of politics. But of course, they flirt with this idea when it comes to criticizing the current political spectrum, because... Yeah. I mean, there is a short stretch between corruption and conspiracy. And do you think that populism is really a threat to democracy, like Jan-Werner Müller said, and as a consequence to democratic institutions? And if so, what are the values of these institutions, in your opinion? Okay, so I think that uh, one good thing about populism is that it invites us to revisit and redefine what the core of a democracy is. Mm -hmm. If we take the populists, but also a lot of people, they would say that democracy is about what we call the rule of the many, the rule of the majority, what we call majoritarianism. But the problem, and that's a problem for uh, politics, for populists, uh, for our response to populism, but also for democratic theorists, is that if you have that definition, you have to say something about the losers of democracy. So those in The minority, those who consistently and persistently lose in that particular game that democracy is about. If I were to um, point to a problem for the future, is that um, if we only work with that sort of majoritarian and procedural account of democracy, we might actually entrench Mm -hmm. uh, ma both majorities and minority. And when a majority is consistently and sustainably ruling over a minority, we can start to talk about oppression and political oppression and what that does to a democracy that is supposed to work with political equality. Yeah, you were already talking about the future. So my last question is, what do you hope for the future when you think of us living together as a society in modern democracies? So I think, I mean, uh, that, that question is great because I think it also goes to the core of my, of my research on uh, populism and the European Court of Human Rights, actually. Because, as I just said, I think if we focus or over-focus on a procedural approach to democracy based on majority voting, we actually lose something absolutely fundamental of democracy, which is a more substantive approach that emphasizes deliberation mm -hmm. and democratic discussion, democratic debate. Yeah. The reason why democratic debate is so important, as I said in my earlier response, is that the minorities need to be given reasons mm -hmm. for being on the loser's side of the game. So it makes a difference to, I think, our assessment of a democratic society, whether we treat the losers as people that do not deserve particular justifications for being sidelined, or whether we do make an effort through deliberation, mm -hmm. whether that is before an election takes place or after, actually it should be an ongoing effort yeah. to try to form a, a deliberative community where we permanently try to reach some consensus. Mm -hmm. And that supposes, of course, an entire, not only an institutional framework, but also a strong civil society, yeah. including a strong and independent press, and things like a podcast, like you're doing, where you can actually freely exchange views. The premise here, in my view, and the risk 
is that we all grow up with some kind of bias towards politics and towards what we think is the public good. Mm-hmm. So we talk about cognitive bias, for instance. So for instance, it's uh, if you grew up in a particular segment of society with particular characteristics, uh, you are much less likely to be sensitive to, let's say, a minority. Mm-hmm. And deliberation helps with that, with reducing the sort of natural bias that uh, we grew up with. Yeah. And I mean, what I take from what you just said is that through this deliberation and discussion process, the minority can also turn into the majority, of course, and the other way around. So this constant process, yeah, I think it's a a promising future for us (laughs) still, despite this pandemic happening. Well, thank you so much, Alain. Uh, for taking the time to chat with us today. I certainly learned a lot today and I always think it is important to talk about issues of democracy and the rule of law because, well, we are constantly affected by it even though we don't notice it. So my last question for you today, what book would you recommend if our listeners would like to learn more about populism? Um, I think that actually I wouldn't recommend a book on populism because I think that populism might just be, you know, one way of approaching the more contentious issue here, which is how we define democracy. Mm -hmm. So I would just recommend a quite short book um, of one of the pioneers of democratic theory. It's called On Democracy Mm -hmm. um, and the author is Dahl, D-A-H-L. And I think that is enough to think about democracy and then maybe rethink what populism does to democracy. Thank you very much. Since this is the last episode in this year, I just wanted to take a moment to wish you all a great New Year's Eve and a nice and smooth transition to 2021. I just hope that next year will be better for all of us and I'm already looking forward to the next episode. So take care and talk to you again next year.